Hello, one and all, and welcome uh, to the Booktopia podcast. My name is Nicholas Lieb, and I'm the social media specialist here at Booktopia. And we're recording currently in the during the time of Crime Month, where we recognise fantastic crime books and other fantastic thrillers written by um, uh, authors in Australia. And I'm delighted to announce that today I'll be speaking with Greg Woodland, who the author, who's the author of The Night Whistler, which is out um, on August 4th. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Nick. Really glad to be here. It's great to have you. And look, most people obviously know you from being a screenwriter and director and working within film, script editing, and but this is your, your first foray, your first novel. Um, how do you feel now that it's finished, the book is so close to release, it, you're, you're about to release that first book. Is it different from a from screen and film, or does it still feel exactly the same? You still get that little nervous rush anticipation, for sure. I think this might be a little bit of a longer kind of launch, especially because now so much of it's going to be online. So it could take a number of events to launch it, in fact. But, uh, yeah, no, I'm delighted to have finished it. It's not actually the first novel I've written. I wrote another one a few years before this, a paranormal novel, and I th- it got uh, won a number of awards but didn't get published. But this is my first rural crime book, and I'm absolutely delighted with this. Yeah, as you should be. It's a fascinating uh, book. Um, for, for all of our listeners, can you tell us a little bit, uh, a taster for The Night Whistler? Okay, set in a small country town in New England, New South Wales in 1967, a fairly bigoted, slightly racist town. Um, And it begins with a disgraced detective, um, now bumped down to probationary probationary constable, Mick Goodnow, who's been missing um, one of his three dogs. It's broken out and he's on a hunt to find it. And uh, roughly the same time, or slightly before this, uh, 12-year-old Hal and his little brother Evan, um, they're also new to town, uh, as Mick's only been here six months, that these guys have just been here a few for a couple of weeks now, and they're out exploring the area, and they come upon um, a dog that's been brutally murdered, stuffed into a rusty drum. And the boys take him out and they give him a Christian burial and so on. Later, Constable Goodnow stumbles upon the grave and it turns out to be his missing German shepherd, Charlie. And he vows to find the sadistic killer. And that's the start of this. And uh, the two strands gradually um, interweave. Uh, We cut back to Hal's family. His dad is a commercial traveller and he's been he's sent away for weeks on business and his mum starts getting these rather menacing, malicious late night phone calls from a stranger who whistles, are you lonesome tonight, down the phone and then either hangs up on later, says he wants to kill for her and so on. When she fights back, the Night Whistler's terror campaign starts to escalate and little by little it involves... Mick Goodnow, who begins to think that the Whistler is somehow involved with this trail of pet killings that's been going back for two years now that he's discovered. Oh, chilling. I love it. What a great, <laughs> what a 
inter- interlocking, mind-bending, twists and turns uh, pitch. I love it. Um, you know, what prompted you to make the move from writing for film to writing for novel? Is it something that you've kind of always been working towards? I know you mentioned that you already had written beforehand, but in terms of finally leading to that step of publishing this book? Um, I've always been a writer. Way before I started writing screenplays, um, I was writing journals. I was filling journals, journal upon journal, with kind of rambles. I also wrote a lot of poetry, mostly pretty bad poetry, I have to say, if I ever look at it again. Uh, but um, I, I did take a left turn into writing screenplays in the 80s and got into the um, Australian Film and TV and Radio School after making a couple of films. Uh, then I, um, I, I wound up pretty much as a, a filmmaker, a jobbing writer, director, and uh, writing quite a lot of um, documentaries, corporate videos and short films, a number of about seven or eight short films I made. Then um, around about that time, my mother told me the story about the year she had when there were kids growing up in South Tamworth, and our dad was a commercial traveller at the time. Um, and uh, how he, how she had this nocturnal nuisance caller who began to be very scary, and she had to keep this person secret for over the course of a year. Uh, he seemed to uh, have an uncanny knowledge that whenever my dad was away, he would call and start pestering my mother with these calls. And she had us five kids, five young boys at home, and she did the best she could to protect um, us from any knowledge of this. Although I do have some vague memories of kind of things that went bump in the night and, you know, some scary moments for my parents, I think. But we nev- they never did find him. And she told me about this story. I'd completely forgotten any of it um, in my 30s. And I started to write this uh, script then. I wrote quite a number of drafts of it. It finally got uh, a very good veteran um, producer on board and uh, it it got uh, cast. um, We packaged it up and it was pretty much ready to go uh, by about 2008. And then, of course, at the end of 2008, the... GFC happened, and uh, mm-hmm. Disney, Disney, who was our distributor, pulled out, and a number of Australian films, including this one, it was then called The Whistler, um, it fell over, and um, it, it went, the script went, it was a bit of a shame, but anyway, that's, that's the way it goes in films, I wasn't the only one that year, there were a lot of films fell over, timing is everything with a movie, um, so it was in my bottom drawer for quite a number of years, and it started to call to me again about five years ago after I'd done this first book, this paranormal book. I wanted to get something a little bit more realistic and a little bit more crime, as I'm heavily into crime. That tends to tends to be what I read more than anything. And I'd started reading some of the Australian rural crime books. One might make the seeds of a, of a good um, rural crime book. So um, that was just a, a part of it, that... Uh, story that originally came from my mother and then then turned into a script. I love that it kind of went to the process of actually becoming, it started as a film and then ended up as a book um, and kind of went through a whole kind of metamorphose. Uh, In terms of actually the question of 
of you know of the form that this book has been you know in a, in a film script and as well as a, now a novel what would you kind of say are the main differences between writing the film and writing a novel is it one and the same or is it just markedly different no it's quite different i must say i found it really liberating when i started writing the novel it was just glorious to kind of open up all the characters and the vistas and do some story building um, the other thing was I had to introduce and build up two more strands in it. There, um, I didn't really have a detective story in the film. There, was, there were cops in it. They were completely inept. I wanted a real detective in there, so I had to research, do a lot of research to build that detective story up. I also wanted a stronger kind of psychopath. I wanted, I wanted to ramp the whole thing up, in fact, and pull it much more towards crime than it had been. It was kind of coming-of-age mystery it was before. It was kind of interesting, but it was softer than it is now. It's um, So it's still got that coming-of-age strand in it that came from my mum's story and our experiences of growing up as kids in the country back in the 60s. But, um, but it also has this harder, kind of darker subplot um, of the detective on the trail of this... Um, this psychopath who's kind of honing his craft, killing animals to begin with and gradually doing nastier things towards the this the people in the town, especially um, this family of this, these two young kids, Hal and Evan. Mm. I was going to actually ask about how, when you started out with this, if you actually were sending it out, to, did it just evolve into a crime novel? But it sounds like you really were set on going for something crime related from the get go. Was that was that always the case, or did it just kind of more evolve as you were writing? Ah, in terms of no, I really wanted that. Um, I wanted. Look, I was into. I was a big fan of James Lee Burke, the American author, and he'd written a number of stories set in country areas. He, um, Minnesota for one of his detectives. Billy Bob Holland, and the other one was um, uh, Louisiana. That's the Dave Robichaux story. So I really liked those country country cop stories. And I thought uh, not many people at that five years ago, I think Jane Harper's The Dryer came out in that year, and I, I read that not long after I'd knocked out my first draft of my book, and I began to think, oh, gee, this is similar territory, but hers is modern. I want mine set in the 60s. Um, the late 60s. I guess that's a marked difference. It's, it's pre-technology. You know, I wanted an era where men could just go vanish, just drop off the end of the world, and they couldn't be called to account. A um, bit like my dad. He'd just ring home once every two weeks or something, and, you know, we didn't know where he was. He'd just ring in. Phone calls were quite expensive, long-distance phone calls, and that was certainly a great excuse for men to not to have to ring home or and uh, so, yeah, I wanted this situation where um, uh, people could just disappear for a while. They couldn't be easily contacted. No mobile phones, no computers, no high tech. And, uh, you know, just the sense of a country town, a simpler uh, kind of time, but not necessarily a more innocent time. Far from a more innocent time, in fact. Um, there's a lot of dark crimes going on in Australia at the time, and I, I, the more research I did, the more I was drawn towards one particular um, incident, uh, the Wanda Beat killings, um, which is still to this day unsolved, uh, two 15-year-old girls 
uh, were, were brutally killed and the killer was never found. And though there are many theories about who it was. Well, I wanted a detective who'd been on a case very like that. In fact, that was the model for case that kind of sent me into, into meltdown after he'd fallen out with the system and with a senior sergeant detective. And that's how he winds up being bumped down to probationary constable and now finds himself the low man on the totem pole in this uh, one-horse town. Yeah, it's it's so fascinating hearing about all that stuff. And I love that you, you bring up particular books like The Dry and uh, that because The Night Whistler really follows in that tradition of Australian crime novels with within a rural setting. There's just something about small country towns and mysteries that just go so well together. I think so. I mean, Agatha Christie did it, you know, nearly 100 years ago with all those little uh, English village Miss Marple kind of things. And this is obviously not quite as cosy as that. Um, but I think the for me, the main thing was I lived... I lived in those areas for about 10 years or so, firstly as a kid and then later as a teenager when I went to uni in Armidale, UNE. Um, and when I um, dropped out of uni in my third year, quite wisely, I wound up finding myself living in the town for another couple of years afterwards and just working there. And to this day, I've got a great love and kind of fondness for all that New England area, especially Armidale, but I love the little towns in the area like Walker, Yarala, Guyra, um, you know, Tenterfield and so on, and uh, Glen Innes. They're all, you know, they're all interesting towns, and yet they all had, um, you know, pretty dark things happen to them, especially to the to the indigenous people, the original inhabitants yeah. of that. And I wanted the sense of that to come through in the relationships between the town's indigenous characters and the white characters in it. And it's a kind of fairly rocky relationship. And um, by and large, there are good things, good moments in it. And there are you know, people, uh, the kid Hal is trying, has a, trying to befriend this young girl who's an Aboriginal girl. And um, she is a very smart girl who's Ali, that is. Uh, who's something of a junior activist in a way. She's kind of very wary of him, and yet they get on really well. They get on like a house on fire, share a sense of humour and a sense of mystery and imagination. And uh, so I, I did want that to be a major strand of the story, and I think I think it is reasonably, um, in, in some ways I think the dynamic works quite well. It's a kind of on-again, off-again, tentative relationship, but with a kind of building mutual respect. Mm, yeah. yeah, it's it's interesting to me as well that your, your choice to set the book as well in the late 1960s um, as well in terms of it's very, the whole place is very evocative of that period and that kind of, separation and real it's there's so many it's so easy to disappear when you're deciding when to set a story what kind of drives that decision like when it came to this book was it something inherent or practical to the story or was it you driven more by a tone that you were chasing what, what kind of drove you to that it was all those things um look you know it was also a nostalgia for a kind of childhood. So there was a lot of memory in it. And that and the memory of the landscape is probably 
as fictionalized as as the other fictional ingredients in it. You know, my memory is jogged by old photographs I've got that turned up from uh, one of my brothers found from our dad's old slides from the 60s. And there were lots of shots of myself and my four brothers and so on and uh, and our, our parents in the area and so on. But not only that, I, I started to return to the area um, when I was first, even when I was do, going to make it as a film, I did location recce to that area, took a lot of photographs. And from those photos, um, my my memories began to reform. And um, they seemed on the one hand incredibly vivid, but on the other, there's, there's uh, um, no way of knowing how much of them is fabricated and how much is actual memory. <laughs> but um, but I did love that, and yes, it was a deliberate deliberate choice for a number of um, reasons to set it in '67. I did want it to be different, but I also like this idea that the more things change, the more they remain the same. And so I find that um, through my cultural readers, uh, I got in touch with with some local indigenous people, Anawan people in Armadale, and um, they were great in in telling in just allowing me to kind of rehash the past with them and just talk about things and although there's a quite a lot of progress i think in the town in certain areas of course um you know especially with the advent of black lives matter there's a lot of um of awareness that in in certain areas things are not changing and they're not that much different than they were in 67 in some ways, even though on the surface things, you know, uh, I think relationships uh, are probably much more advanced and more sophisticated. There wasn't that kind of apartheid that was there, really, a segregation, really, for want of a better word, in the 60s. Now it's quite different, and yet there is still these areas um, where there's this huge gap. And uh, anyway, without going on about it, I just wanted the book to throw up some of those things and um, hopefully they have some resonance for, for now as well. Yeah, I was actually about to, that was actually going to lead very nicely on to another question I was going to ask because, I mean, obviously with the research that was involved in bringing this, this time and, and place to life, I was about to ask, do you see any parallels between this era that you'd been writing about and the, the times that, that we're living through now um, in terms of the space and not only that, but the interactions between characters? I think without a doubt, yeah. Um, I think from uh, my conversations with my uh, cultural readers, especially one of them, um, Steve, um, I have you know, learned that on the one hand, there's quite a lot of progress, for instance, with the local council and so on. They, you know, um, the council is doing thing, uh, doing quite a lot more, I believe, for people of colour than they did back in the day when, when we were kids growing up there. Aboriginal people back then were very much fringe dwellers living on the edge of town in semi-poverty conditions, almost third world conditions. Um, you would see them. There were, there were kids at school who were Aboriginal and so on, and you would see Aboriginal people from time to time in jobs in the town. I'm sure a lot of them worked in the town, but we just didn't encounter very many as kids. And yet 
there was their presence was was always there. Uh, later on, when I was in Armadale, of course, um, I was much more aware of it. Uh, there were more people in the town, even then. So that was the 70s, the mid and late 70s. And even then, there were 12 pubs in Armadale and there was only one pub that the blackfellas were permitted to drink in. I think that was memory, the old Royal Hotel it might have been. It was a fairly rough pub and it was a bit like Aboriginal land there. So... Um, White boys had to be careful about drinking in the in the Aboriginal pub. It was a tough pub, and rightly so. It was one of the few places that they could regard as um, Anawan land, I think, uh, in, in the actual town itself. Um, so, yeah, no, they were barred from every pub, and it, uh, every other pub, that is. And so there was a sense of segregation there. And, yeah, the funny thing was, because of the uni and the teachers' college there, there was a lot of diversity in the town at the time. So there were a lot of Asian people. I knew African people, yeah. uh, black kids from Africa who we were friendly with and so on. You were more likely to know and they were more, uh, and I think they were treated with more respect than Aboriginal people in the town the, uh, in the 70s. Well, things have obviously changed since then. And I don't want to speak out of turn, but I, I would think that Aboriginal people have more of a voice now, and um, that's a good thing. And yet there are still these differences and these and these gaps and the way that um, people are treated by uh, police, for one, quite often, you know, the systematic kind of uh, treatment, you know, and, and many people still feel like they're second-class citizens in their own town. There's no, you know, it's just... Um, it's, it's not a good thing. So yeah. hopefully it will strike a chord with people. Um, you know, I think that, it, you know, it's a fictional town, Moorable, and yet I think it's true to, probably true to many, many small towns all over New South Wales, and I would think probably many other states too. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you kind of also touch on, in terms of seeing those parallels, just the nature of kind of outsiders that are so prominent within these environments, and particularly with the narrative of this book. Um, and I kind of really want to ask you about the, the two characters that this book follows in Hal and, and Mick, because um, they're both essentially outsiders in this space. Kind of what, what is it that attracted you to that? particular perspective <laughs> um i guess i like the outsider character i mean it is a trope of detective fiction the the, the detective is hardly ever um you know a regular a regular guy one of the one of the boys you know most detectives are all already you know because of the the trope they're already at odds with the system they're already a bit maverick you know they do different things riskier things they don't care about um or they dodge um uh the the feedback from their superiors so-called and so i wanted somebody like that but also the boy himself like mick he's also a city kid who's come to the country and and like mick he's also a fish out of water so he's getting used to the idea of this environment um, that he finds himself in, that at, that at first he finds, Hal finds boring and kind of, you know, very dreary and bleak and missing so many of the things he liked in the city. And yet as he goes along and as he, through, as he meets Ali, this girl, um, 
and develops a friendship with her and be and another kid who's a kind of fairly rough nut in the town, a boy called Lloyd. He, he kind of starts to develop a, a strange um, um, kind of hostile relationship at first with him and he gradually finds that kid's an ally of sorts. Um, so he begins to understand the town a little bit and he begins to love being in the actual country. There's something in the actual physical country and being out in nature, the, the open spaces that appeals to him. Uh, and in that sense, it also appeals to Mick. Mick likes, I think, being on the, living on the edge of town. He's in a fairly old rambling weatherboard house and he's got lots of room for him and his three dogs. Well, there's two dogs for most of the story, but initially it's him and his three dogs. They're his new family. He's, he's um, you know, he's on the outer with his wife. There's a divorce about to happen. And he's dying to see his, his daughter again, who's about 14, and he hasn't seen her for nearly a year. And his wife's kind of a bit of an obstacle with that relationship. So, so yes, they're both outsiders. And in the sense that they've got this, you know, Mick loves these dogs and Hal would like to know more about dogs, likes dogs. In that sense, um, there's something in common they've got. And so they be, Hal begins to trust this guy, this older detective, and he likes him. The other younger detectives are complete idiots as, as far as Hal's concerned. Hal's a fairly smart kid, a little bit precocious in his own investigations and his own hunting around for clues and he's um, trying to find out who his mother's stalker is and then this mysterious caravan boy that's disappeared from the, the old caravan where there's some other horrible uh, murder 20 years ago. Um, he's on the trail of that too and he's trying to tie things together in just in the same way, I suppose, that Mick Goodnow is trying to tie things up as well. And inevitably, their, their paths do cross and they form this kind of I suppose it's a kind of wannabe father and son situation because Hal's own father is missing and I suppose he looks to an older um, kind of male role model figure and, and Mick is kind of, for want of a better word, become, well, for want of a, another male role model, he becomes that really mm. to, to Hal. Yeah, it's I, I love the how you've realised these characters and how you've brought them onto the page. Um, is there a, a character in this novel who you relate to more than others? Um, when I first started weaving this story around, I'm sure it was Hal, but now having gone through parenthood myself and having a, a young son who's now of uni age, nearly 20, um, I can relate more to Mick, <laughs> quite a lot more. Uh, and of course, I'm I'm uh, even older than Mick at the moment, and um, yeah, I can relate to him, and I kind of know that character fairly well. You know, I'm, um, uh, you know, you get to a certain age, and you've been through a number of relationships. I guess you've also been through failures and ups and downs in your career. And I wanted someone who's been touched by that. Uh, sense of failure and yet survived, resurrected himself again and, and has carved out a new place for him. I kind of wanted to do that. So there's a fair bit of me, I suppose, in the Mick, you know, uh, in, in Mick there. I guess, um, of course, he's a very idealised and much braver Mick than I am and somebody who uses weapons and uh, confronts bad people, whereas I'm a physical coward. 
Oh, no. <laughs> um, it's, well, it's interesting you kind of mentioned that because it leads on to one other big aspect about this um, about this book, and I think it's a key thing about all fantastic crime and, you know, thriller books, just how unsettling it is. You, you know, this kind of sense of being unsettled is just layered in lots of ways throughout the book, not just in the setting, but, you know, how you mentioned this violence towards animals. There's a, a violent event from the past that, that hangs over the novel, and obviously that's a, we don't want to get into spoiler territory. And, of course, you mentioned that kind of stalker putting everything on edge. It's just very, very unsettling. I kind of feel, particularly, you know, we've had a, we've had a couple of crime authors that we've spoken to. Was it unsettling for you to write it, um, or did you kind of have, were able were you able to maintain that separation between yourself and the events you were describing? Sometimes it's a great if if I'm really lucky and I can really um, immerse myself in writing a scene. Um, I'd yeah I'd come out of it quite creeped out, and I quite love that feeling. <laughs> Um, you know, as a, as a, I used to watch a lot of horror and read a lot of horror as a kid, as a young, young teenager. Um, my reading began with a lot of horror, mystery and crime. I was always into that and that feeling of being uneased, you know, made uneasy. I like that very much. And um, so if I can do that to myself, well, it's not too bad while you're writing. But sometimes, of course, it becomes, you know, if you know what's happening, um, a lot of the way through, when you plotted it out, as I tended to, I'm, uh, you know, I'm not actually creeping myself out. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just, um, you know, fleshing out the bones of the of the outline. Um, Stephen King, famous, is not a plotter. He's a pantser, and he he says that um, he sets up a situation, and he doesn't want to know. What's going to happen at the end? He says, if I'm if I'm completely in the dark about it, then sure as hell the, the reader is going to be. Well, unfortunately, I don't have his fantastic sense of um, plotting and his kind of innate sense of structure. So even though he does know where it's going, he kind of finds where it's going. It's uh, fairly quickly, I think, as he's as he's writing. Um, I have to plot everything out, and there's only a few parts doing a doing a maybe the fourth draft or something rethinking the end where i didn't plot where i did was going to end but i wanted to get there in a different way so that was pretty much the only point where i i didn't refer to cards and i didn't know where the scenes were quite going and yes i found it again quite uneasy part as much from not knowing where the heck i was going and whether i was going to make it all tie together as, as from the actual atmosphere, the scary atmosphere of some of the things that were going on in the scenes. But I certainly hope that sense of unease comes through to the reader because, and I'm glad you mentioned it, Nick, because, yes, I, I really do love that kind of uneasy um, novel. You know, I'm talking about things uh, by um, Gary Disher, a, a wonderful, uh, who more or less is considered the father of... Um, rural crime books modern rural crime books anyway here um yeah i love his his kind of fairly creepy country towns um but you know um even going back to a wonderful book to kill a mockingbird and a, and a movie i love that book and that had a really dark and creepy kind of sense and i wanted to get some of that kind of sense in that small town you know, everything seems to be very pretty on the surface, but these dark undercurrents going on. 
behind picket fences and behind closed doors. And uh, mm. uh, yes, I, so I hope that sense is there. Yes, it definitely is. <laughs> it was. Mm. I had to have you know it, the the best kind of uh, thrillers you have are the ones where after the reader puts it down, they find it difficult to think about anything else for a little while afterwards. And I think you absolutely achieved it. Um, <laughs> That's it's a yeah. testament to the to the writing. I actually have a, a fun kind of question around all of these crime books that you're mentioning. If you if you actually woke up one day and found yourself living in a crime novel, what who do you think you would be? Would you be a killer? Would you be an investigator? A bystander? A victim? Um, where do you think where do you think you'd sit within that world? I'd have to be the detective, of course, given that it's fictional, yeah, for sure. Mind you, it'd be fun to be the perpetrator once in a while, to be the psychopath. That could be fun if it's only fictional. Yeah, I, I, there's, so, there's something so fascinating about some of the great psych, uh, psychopaths or the, the great way that they, they're brought into, in, brought to real life, whether it be within film and or within uh, on the page. Um, we are kind of run, wrapping up for time, but I really want to know, uh, given your extensive experience both within writing for screen and uh, um, writing for books, what's your favourite piece of writing advice uh, that you could give someone? I'd have to say um, that the best piece of advice, this didn't come from me, it came from listening to... Um, to one of my favourite crime writers, Michael Robotham. He says the most important three words that he can tell somebody who's trying to write are make them care. Mm. So just I think that's really um, a great thing. You have to have develop characters that are going to hook the reader. If, if your characters aren't compelling and you don't care for them, no matter how beautiful the writing is or how intricate the plot, how convoluted, what, how many great twists you've got, if we don't care, you, you know, how are you going to get the uh, reader f to the end of the book? You, they have to care, um, and it's our job as a writer to make them care. Yeah, um, and I think, you know, it's it's such a key part of, of really what makes a fantastic novel really relating to that character. Are there any more yes. novels? Yeah, yeah. Are there any yeah, more novels? well, well, yes. Um, at the moment, I'm halfway through, or a bit more, and the second uh, Murabul book. Um, it's got, uh, of course, it's got uh, five, six of the same characters in it now, but it's now you know, five years on, nearly five years on. It's and we're in the year 1971, and there's some dark happenings going on, centering around the abattoir in town and uh, a couple of mysterious suicides. But, uh, yes, yeah, so I'm kind of in the middle, immersed in, in that at the moment and weaving my way through it. That I think I mentioned to you I'd written a paranormal novel to begin with. Uh, after I finished the second book two of the crime series, I'll, I might go back into the land of the vampire and uh, but, it, but bring in a bit of um, the current world. So it'll be a post-COVID vampire, I think. And so I'm going to have a bit of fun with that next year, I think. Oh, my God. The, the entire concept of a post-COVID vampire sounds amazing as a book. I think. <laughs> um, yeah, it should be fun. 
Yeah, absolutely. How wonderful. Um, thank you so much uh, for coming on our podcast, Greg. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, to have to listen uh, to have to have a chat to you and listen about how the night whistler came together. Thank you for having me, Nick. I really appreciate it. Um, so for all of our listeners, uh, The Night Whistler by Greg Woodland was published by Text Publishing and is, will be available on the 4th of August 2020. You can uh, go to our website right now as part of our new Crime Month series where you can actually pre-order um, a copy of the book. You can also go into the running to win over $800 of sleuth books and crime books uh, in, in one of our sleuth care um, sleuth packages. Um, so that will bring us to the end of this podcast. Um, and you can buy all of those books now, including Greg Woodland's The Night Whistler, now on booktopia.com.au. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces, and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. All books featured in this podcast, and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at booktopia.com.au.